important job, being convicted by God to go back to Israel and help the people with this huge building project of building, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. So they'd been in uh, captivity, they'd been refugees, the Israelites, and now they've kind of in dribs and drabs been moving back to Israel. But it's basically been plundered. It's like an utter mess. So they've been rebuilding the altar, they've rebuilt the temple, and they've just... They've just finished rebuilding the walls. And we're at Nehemiah 12 at the moment. So that's where we're at. They've kind of, most of the people are back in Israel. They're kind of refinding their identity, identity as a people. They've had a huge day of repentance. So like saying sorry. And then they've had a huge seven-day festival of just celebrating and partying. That's called the Feast of Tabernacles. And we looked at that two weeks ago. Um, and then uh, Nehemiah 10 which John looked at last week, was like a, like a summary for the Israelites of looking back over their history. Not their personal history, but their history as a people. And it was like, a, you know, a bit like Google, uh, your Facebook timeline. And it's like, this is what you were doing five years ago. This is what you were doing 10 years ago. It was like almost like that for the Israelites of, do you remember a few hundred years ago when you were in slavery? And then God rescued you. And do you remember when you were in the wilderness and starving and God fed you? And do you remember when this happened and God was faithful and God was merciful and God was compassionate? So that's Nehemiah 10. Kind of they've just had this like reflective period looking back and realizing, oh gosh, we've messed up quite a lot as a people, haven't we? Oh, and God's been really faithful and merciful to us every time. So they're at a place now where they've got really clear in their head who God is. And what he's done for them as a people. So they've just been reminded in Nehemiah 10 of who God is. He's faithful, he's compassionate and merciful. And what he's done. And there's a whole list in Nehemiah 10. So Nehemiah 12 that we're tracking today is like their worship. It's like, oh my goodness, you are so good God. We just want to glorify you. That's where they've got to. And so before we look at Nehemiah 12, I just want to quickly unpack what is worship. Because particularly in like a Christian context, if you've been around church for a while, we use the word quite a lot. And sometimes we mean just sung worship. Sometimes we mean something much broader than that. So I want to just look at um, a few definitions. So worship like as a lifestyle looks at lots, lots of different things. And this picture on the top right, uh, this is an amazing picture. This is um, of a whole load of um, Muslims who have found faith in Jesus. And then they live in Iran, where it's basically illegal to leave the faith of Islam. And so they've snuck out of the country to baptize and then snuck back into the country. Like, risked their life in order to publicly declare their um, submission to Jesus Christ. So that for them is like, wow, a huge statement of worship, of total submission. My life, I totally want to give over to God. And then you've got Stormzy at the bottom left there who used Glastonbury as like a worship to God of take my life, take everything that I've accomplished and give it to God. The sung worship, whether it's um, helping people in need 
the tithing, we, you know, often we do tithing and, and our giving as part of worship. We're doing it a bit different today. You'll see why. But that's because that is all part of our worship. It's part of our sacrifice to God. And so a few, um, I always like definitions just to help me. Um, but two definitions just to help us with what worship actually is. So quite a famous one is the, um, the Webster's Dictionary of 1828. So worship is to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. So extravagant love and extreme submission. That's what worship is according to Webster. And then this next one is um, a bit more lengthy. I think it's really helpful. Worship is the human response to the self-revelation of the triune God, so the Trinity of God, Son, and Holy Spirit, which involves the divine initiation in which God graciously reveals himself, his purposes, and will. It's a spiritual and personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, enabled by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And three, it's a response by the worshipper of joyful adoration, reverence, humility, submission, and obedience. I feel like that's like a really thorough definition of worship. It's quite like why I like that one. I put that one in. But this that's really helpful, isn't it, of like, it's a worship of, okay, who God is and what he's done. It's enabled through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in us. And thirdly, it's a response. Worship is a response. And it's that word submission again. Submission comes in both defini definitions. There's something about worship that requires us to submit and to sacrifice. So those are just some human uh, definitions and some, some other human definitions, but these are taken from Scripture that I think are really helpful when we're looking at the broader picture of worship is Romans 12. So therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Okay? So this is Paul obviously doing a bit of teaching on worship as well, because often we get the wrong idea and we can get a bit religious about things. But it's offering our bodies, heart, soul, mind, everything as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Notice there is something about worship that is pleasing to God, but is unpleasing to God as well. There is a way to worship that is either pleasing or unpleasing. I love uh, the message version of that Romans 12. It says, so here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, your eating, your going to work and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. So everything, embracing what God do does for you is the best thing you can do for him. So that's Romans 12. Okay, so we're going to be referencing that quite a lot, is living sacrifices. And then the other one, which I think is really helpful to understand worship, is when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. So this is John 4, verse 23. And Jesus is saying, yet yeah, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers, again, there's something about pleasing worship and unpleasing worship, so true worshippers will worship the Father 
in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. In spirit and in truth. So it's really hard to define worship, I think, which is why so many people have had a good crack at it, because it's two things. It's an attitude, but it is also an act. It's what our heart position is on things, but it's also what we do. Sometimes we can just think, oh, it's just about the heart. And sometimes we think it's just about what we do. Worship is both. It's our attitude and our actions. That all true worshippers must worship God in spirit and in truth. It's, um, I often think personalities take, um, take a bit of a stance on which one we tend to lean into. Whether we're heart-led people, kind of more spirit or truth people. And sometimes that means we worship quite differently. And sometimes it means we're like, well, that's not real worship. The way I worship is real worship. But I love how Jesus is like, true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. So true worship takes place on the inside, in the heart, but also in our minds and our bodies in what we do. Who he is. And what he's done. There's a real, I think it's really important for us, if we're serious about following Jesus, about really acknowledging this this interrelatedness of the physical, what we do physically, and the spiritual dimensions in human beings. Hopefully you all agree we're physical beings and spiritual beings. It's a real... I think a real false dichotomy that we've come up with possibly in the church around the sacred and the secular. If you've ever read anything by Mark Green, his whole like life work is around trying to get rid of this sacred and secular divide. That actually when you offer your whole life as a living sacrifice to God, then everything you do, not just your sung worship on a Sunday, is worship to God. Whether it's your work, your play, your worship, they're all sacred activities under the rule and sovereign of God. And so therefore, we want to pursue freedom and sacrifice in all those areas because that is true worship to God. We want to worship God with our intellect, with our emotions, our personality, our senses, and our body. That's why I love hearing stories of God on the move, of people's front line, whether it's at work, whether it's like playground talk or anything like that in the council. Like I love hearing stories of where people are taking really serious that Romans 12, living sacrifices, and asking God to use them and to use their work, their neighborhood, their communities as their place of worship. That's why as a church, we intentionally want to hear about those things. We don't want there to be a sacred and secular divide. 
So I kind of want you to have that in mind as we look at Nehemiah 12, because we're going to be talking a lot this morning about corporate sung worship, but I wanted to put that in the context of actually what worship is, okay? So whole life worship, Romans 12, living sacrifice, we're now going to zoom in to an aspect of worship, which is a more corporate worship of the body of Christ. So it's like, you know, if you go to Pili Palace, if you just go into the actual Pili Palace but where all the butterflies are, you've actually missed all the other really cool stuff, like the really cool carp and the soft clay and the little farmyard animals. Same thing with worship. If you just think of worship as sung worship on a Sunday, you have missed so much more of what actually it is. So if you've got your Bibles, do you want to get them out? And then turn to Nehemiah 12. We've got a whole load on the side there. Feel free to help yourself in Welsh and English. So Nehemiah 12, I'm going to start at 27 because um, the first bit is just a lot of genealogy, which is great, but I'm short on time. So So we're going to start at 27 and finish at 43. So at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The musicians also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, um, from the neighboring villages, from Beth Gilgal, don't know how to pronounce those, apologies, and from the area of Geba and Asnaveth, for the musicians had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. Imagine that whole villages of musicians. Kate and Barry would love it. That's where they'd be, I'm sure. When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. Okay? Something about the submission there of being wanting to be pure in front of God before they worshipped. So verse 31. I had the leaders of Judah... Go up on top of the wall. So they've just spent all this time building this wall. Now Nehemiah's like, all right, let's get on the wall. And he's probably thinking, please let it hold. Please let it hold. So I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall to the right, toward the dung gate. Shia and half the leaders of uh, Judah followed them, along with uh, Azaria, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, as well as some priests with trumpets, and also Zechariah, son of Jonathan, uh, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zachar, the son of Asaph, and his associate Shemaiah, and a whole load of other names, (laughs) with musical instruments prescribed by David, the man of God. Ezra, the teacher of the law, led that procession. So that's one procession, a whole load of mu- uh, musicians, a choir, going round on the wall on the right. At the foundation gate, they continued directly up to the steps of the city of David on the ascent to the wall and passed above the site of David's palace to the water gate on the east. So then they get another choir. So we're in verse 38. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I, that's Nehemiah, I followed them on top of the wall, together with half the people, past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, over the gate of Ephraim, the Doshana gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, as far as the sheep gate. At the gate of the guard, they stopped. 
So choir over to the right, choir on top of the walls over to the left. At verse 40, this read in me. The two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God. And so did I together with Harshi officials, as well as a whole load of priests. And then to verse 42, the choirs sang under the direction of Josiah. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. So in this chapter, you see all the detail that Nehemiah goes, I love it, when exactly where they went, who was involved. Doesn't want to offend anyone by missing them out. But this chapter is all about the people giving glory to God. Singing, sung worship in adoration and praise and thanksgiving. That is their only agenda. Just to worship God. If we worship in order to get something, then our worship can become shallow or hollow. Worship's not even about our spiritual well-being. Of course, that happens. It's like a byproduct that happens as we worship. But the primary purpose of sung worship is to give glory to God for who he is and for what he's done. In fact, when we let anything else become our focus, whether it's, oh, the music's gone out of time, or I really don't like this song, or, oh, you know, I'm just not feeling it today. I'm just really tired. I'm just not really feeling worship today. It's not really my thing, not really my taste, or I would do it like this then we've totally missed the point of the purpose of worship. Sung worship is to gather together to give glory to God. It's like if I ever rocked up to my classroom when I was teaching and been like, do you know what, I'm just not really quite feeling it today, so I'm not going to teach, we'll just kind of do something else. It's like, that is my purpose. That's why I'm paid, is to go before marking, before parents even, and your main purpose as a maths teacher is to go and teach maths. And I would say that our first purpose in life is to worship our creator. Before anything else, it's not to do anything apart from worship him. Love him back because he loves you so much and created you out of love. Our only purpose, really, anything else is an added bonus. Our first purpose is to say, God, I love you and thank you for everything you've done. David Mathis in his book, Habits of Grace, says, True worship cannot be performed as a means to some other experience. We can't worship because we want something from God. So 
Why is it so important to worship corporately? It's so easy now with YouTube, isn't it, to actually like say, God, I love you. Thank you for who you are and what you've done. Anytime at home on your own. Why do we gather like this and sing together? It's quite a weird thing if you're new to church, isn't it? It's probably one of the things that stood out to you the most. Because actually in no other settings, apart from maybe a sporting match, do we gather together to just sing, unless you're in a choir. Yeah, so if you're new to faith, worship probably feels a bit unusual to start off with. I um, I just want to look at the Iranian church for a second because this is just blowing my mind at the moment the more I read it. So it's in Iran, the church, the Christian church is um, growing quickest on the planet at the moment in Iran. Lots and lots of Muslims finding faith in Jesus and turning away from Islam to follow him. And so they have to meet in secret to worship. It's actually illegal because the, um, the religion of Iran, so it's the Islamic Republic of Iran. And so if you are an ethnic Persian, you're automatically seen as a Muslim. Okay? So it's illegal to produce any sort of Christian literature or hold any sorts of church service in their language in Farsi because they're seen as Muslims if they're of that ethnic, um, if they're Persian, okay? So if, they, if a Persian person in Iran leaves Islam, then they can be punished by law with the death penalty, Although what happens more and more is they're more likely to be imprisoned for crimes against national security. So they have to keep their faith secret, but they gather together in secret house churches. And they're monitored frequently. They're, they're raided. Dozens of Christians, you know, they, they are constantly being put in prison. So if corporate worship isn't very important then why on earth would you risk your life to gather as a, as a fellowship or people of God? It doesn't make any sense. You wouldn't bother. You would just be like, okay, I found Jesus. Now I'm just going to fly solo on it in the quiet so that people don't know. I'll just worship in quiet. Like of all people, they, I would say, have a legit excuse for not turning up and gathering as the body to worship God because we might get killed. <laughs> that is a legit excuse, and yet it's not an excuse for them. They go, they gather together, they go on these terribly dangerous journeys to get out of the country so that they can hold a baptism gathering and then sneak back in. Amazing. And yet I think it's so easy for us to be like, oh, I just don't feel it. Stuff is really hard at the moment. I don't want to face people. I just don't. So why is corporate worship so important? Martin Luther says, at home in my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart. And it breaks its way through. There is something quite significant about worship. Because as we worship, the word, the Holy Spirit, and fellowship happens all at once. As we sing songs together, 
often they're linked to scriptures. We're feeding our hearts and minds on this on scripture. Holy Spirit is in the place, and we're all together as a fellowship of the body. Worship is one of the very unique settings where all three of those come together. Donald Whitney says, there's an element of worship and Christianity that cannot be experienced in private worship or by watching worship. There are some graces and blessings that God gives only in meeting together with other believers. And I really think that's true. There's a certain grace that God pours out on his people when they're gathered together that can't quite happen when we're just on our own. So we were created for community. It's why for Nehemiah 12, you know, the musicians could have just celebrated in their village. Why did they need to come into the center of Jerusalem and start running along the walls? Because there was something about coming together as the body of Christ to declare and glorify God, who you are and what you've done. So I just want to finish by looking at how do we worship. So Lighthouse Church, what kind of worshipping corporately community do we want to be? Because like I said, I do think there's a right and a wrong way to worship. The Bible says, let us be grateful and worship God in a way that pleases him. Which must mean there's a right and a wrong way. So I'm going to try and just hopefully unpick what I kind of feel are the right ways to worship for us as a community. And the first one is, pleasing worship must be purposeful. God, I have a purpose. And I've said it loads today. But what is the ultimate purpose of sung worship? It is to give glory to God for who he is and what he's done. And so when we think about all the things that God had done in Nehemiah and what they're celebrating as they go along these walls, Well, they're celebrating and thanking God for what he's done in the way that he divinely brought Nehemiah and his brother together, right back in Nehemiah 1. God had sovereignly directed the king's heart, had been like, yeah, sure, Nehemiah, go go back to Israel and rebuild the wall. It's amazing. The way that God had given Nehemiah these willing, hardworking colleagues, people in unity, he protected them against their enemies. Do you remember when dad... Um, John Sadler was chatting about discouragement and encouragement. They had had so much discouragement of people saying, you're not going to be able to do this. He'd protected them. He'd sustained them, even when they were all overwhelmed, in the rubble, kicking off, being like, Nehemiah, we can't do this. He'd sustained them. He'd given them freedom to worship again. They'd had that whole seven-day celebration. They'd not been able to do that while they were refugees. He'd given them godly leaders. All those things were fresh on their minds as they were given thanksgiving to God. And sometimes, this is why we really encourage, like, God's on the move. What are we grateful for? Because sometimes we can be so focused on the now and the present that actually we've lost the discipline of stopping and remembering what has God done. Because actually, that is my main purpose in worship, to glorify who God is and what he's done. That should be at the forefront of our minds when whoever's leading worship, 
I pray, God, what am I thanking you for this morning? Secondly, pleasing worship must be pure. Notice in Nehemiah 12, there was a whole cleansing thing that went on before they started worshipping. The Levites had to get everyone like ceremonially clean before they could glorify God. Now, we don't have to do all the kind of sacrificing that they had to do. But what I think we do need to do, and sometimes we lose this, is we do need to stand before God. And before we worship him, we need to say, God, I am sorry for everywhere where I've sinned. Sin means missing the mark. Not being all that God created and has for us. We use the word in repenting to say sorry. I'm sorry, God, for what I, how I reacted at work. I'm sorry, God, for the way I thought about that person. I'm sorry, God, for the way I've spent my money this last month. It's not been honoring to you. Or the way I've eaten or drunk. I'm sorry, God. That was not your best. Before we worship, pleasing worship must be pure must be Christ-centered because we only can get forgiveness through Christ. We must have a clean heart before we worship. That comes through repenting. Thirdly, worship must be accurate. If you speak to any worship leader, they, they will tell you this. The songs they sing, what they want to re- reflect scripture. It's accurate. What we're singing is accurate. As Jesus said, we want to worship in spirit and in truth. The truth of who God is. That's why reading our Bibles is so important to just remind us who God is. What is the truth? Fourthly, and sometimes I think as British people, we find this one quite hard. Worship must be passionate. Worship with all your heart and soul. I don't know how we can do that by kind of just singing words. I think particularly if you've been a Christian a long time and you know a song quite well, so you kind of go a bit on autopilot. You don't think about the songs because you know them. It's really easy then to disengage with what you're saying and your heart doesn't engage because your mouth can just sing without engaging your heart and mind. But we're called to worship with our hearts and our souls. God's pleasing worship is deeply emotional. But it also should be Deeply biblical. Spirit and in truth. We use both our hearts and our heads when we worship. I am, um, I don't know about you, but I, uh, I find that I'm really stirred in worship when I actually see the emotions of other people and the way that they're responding to God, particularly when I know that person is going through a really awful season in their life. I don't know if that stirs you, but when I know some of the stuff that is going on in people's life and I see them worshipping who God is and what he's done, it 
it really like really moves me because there's something about the living sacrifice of that person submitting everything to God in their pain that really just kind of almost pushes me to my knees of, oh my goodness, the way that the Spirit is moving in that person as they worship almost challenges and pushes me to want more of God in my own life. I think, again, that's why it's so important to gather corporately. I think our worship should be an encouragement to one another. Because our greatest weapon for joy is worship. It's our greatest weapon. So two more. Worship, which must be proclamatory. And what I mean by this is, I just kind of touched on it a bit, but when we worship, people should see the grace and the power of God at work in our lives. Our worship shouldn't be an obstacle for other people engaging and connecting with God. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul like specifically does some teaching to the church around this whole thing. He says, if I pray in tongues, my spirit prays, but my mind lies fallow and all that intelligence is wasted. So what's the solution? The answer is simple enough. Do both. I should be spiritually free and expressive as I pray, but I should also be thoughtful and mindful as I pray. It's the spirit and truth again. I should sing with my spirit and sing with my mind. If you give a a blessing using your private prayer language, your tongues, you might call that, which no one else understands, how can some outsiders who's just shown up and has no idea on what's going on know when to say amen? Your blessing might be beautiful, but you have very effectively cut that person out of it. And so our worship should be proclaiming the grace and power of God, not being an obstacle for other people worshipping. That's why for us at Lighthouse, you may have noticed, but we try and keep worship to 20 minutes here on a Sunday morning in the main vault because we know that we've got all sorts of us gathered here today that some of us are like, got an incredible worship stamina. We could literally worship for hours and hours and hours on end. But some of us that are really new and really new to worship, actually probably 20 minutes is about all that we can handle before then it becomes maybe an obstacle or uncomfortable even. If we're not used to singing out loud, people that we don't know, it's quite scary. So that's why we give monthly small groups together where we just get to gather together and worship. Now we can go on and on. Finally, worship must be practical. Real worship is about engaging our spirits and minds, but also our bodies. Scripture says, love God with all your strength and your body. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So real worship costs. David knew this in one of his Psalms. He says, I will not offer to the Lord my God sacrifices that have cost me nothing. God is pleased with different sacrifices, whether it's thanksgiving, praise, humility, repentance, offerings of money, prayer, serving others and sharing with those in need. 
Those are all ways of worshipping God. They all involve a personal sacrifice because we can't exalt God and ourselves at the same time. It takes effort and energy and it should cost us something. It's not always convenient. It's not even comfortable sometimes. Sometimes worship is a sheer act of the will. When you praise God, when you don't feel like it, when things are hard, when you don't want to get out of bed, when you're tired, you don't want to help others because life's worn out. You're offering a sacrifice of worship to God. Now, I'm not saying have unhealthy boundaries. I'm not saying sacrifice yourself all the time at the extent of your marriage or your children or your friendships, your Sabbath. Those are all disciplines that God calls us to as well. We hold all of these in tension. But worshipping God is and should be a sacrifice. Whether that's praising him when things are tough, thanking him when we've got a heap of unanswered prayers, when we're dealing with disappointment, giving financially when we know we're tight on money, repenting, saying sorry to God when we know actually we're waiting for a sorry from other people. Worship isn't easy. It requires a sacrifice. It's discipleship for Jesus. It isn't easy. So why do it? Because it's what we were created to do. It's our first purpose in life. So um, I'm going to invite the band up and um, we're going to finish the gathering by doing two things. We're going to take communion together as we gather corporately. We're going to give God the glory by coming and, and taking communion. So I encourage you to grab a friend, grab someone in your small group, come as a family and take communion. But I also am going to put the giving basket at the front here as well. Because I just want us to start challenging us as a community, and particularly if, if Lighthouse Church is your home church, you call this your home church. And I know lots of you give financially, but actually that's part of our worship. It's what God calls us to do. It's not just about our singing. It's every area of our life. And so you, that might just be something as the music's playing that you might ask God, God, is there an area of my life that I'm not giving to you as a sacrifice? So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go straight into worship. Father God, thank you that we do freely in this country get to come together, worship you together to glorify who you are and what you've done in our own lives, in our friends' lives, in our country's life and humanity's life. We thank you that you are faithful, that you are a good God, you're a holy God that you're our friend, that you're our healer, that you're our saviour, that you are sovereign, that you forgive us. And we're sorry, Father God, for where we mess up constantly, for where we've sinned. And thank you that we get to come before you forgiven through Jesus Christ's blood and body. 
And as a community here on Anglesey, Father God, we want you to commission us to be a community of worshippers who know how to sacrifice, who know how to worship and glorify you when things are tough, who know how to be living sacrifices, not just on a Sunday, but 24-7. Holy Spirit, we invite you in this place to stir in us and take us to new heights of sung worship when we gather together. As we sacrifice in our worship, would your Holy Spirit be more and more at work in our own hearts, bringing healing, bringing forgiveness, bringing faith for those that don't know you. Amen. No. Mm-hmm. 